So where we are starting in your notes, <laughs> y'all are laughing at me. Y'all are like, this, this girl, she's never going to get through her notes. Y'all realize that I had 10 pages of my notes, and what I taught you last week was three. I got through three of 10 of last week's content. Y'all, pray for me. I mean, I'm serious. When I say pray for me, I'm seriously like learning stuff that I have never learned before, and then my mind is blown, and then I'm like going through this whole day of like, well, do I really believe that? And then how am I gonna teach this? And then I'm back up, okay, God, you got this. So I just want you to know, I have another 10 pages of notes for tonight, but Kristen is not going to let me go over 745. She's just not, and because she's a good friend. And I am literally asking the Lord point by point, do I say this or not say this? That's, that's all I can do. He's given me all of this, and I don't know if it's for me <laughs> to have confidence in teaching one point. I need to see all the way around the point from all perspectives and angles before I'm confident to say it to you. So maybe that was just for me. But I'm going to give you everything that I think the Spirit. Oh, Lord, let me just pray. Father, Lord, we love you so much. You've given us truth in your word. And there's so much about it that we still don't understand or comprehend because it's, it's revealed. It's being revealed to us over time, just like it has always been throughout all of history. But Lord, we have never lived in a moment, a day and time like we are living today, where messages are inundating us, constant, constant media and messaging and politics and agendas. We've never lived like this. And it is so disorienting. And, and Lord, I'm just helpless sometimes. I just feel helpless. I feel so deficient. I feel so inadequate, God. I honestly, my flesh just wants to be a part of the world and just <laughs> let it be easier <laughs> than this. I don't want to be contentious. <laughs> I, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Lord, but God, you loved us way too much. You sent yourself, your son, to die for us. And so we thank you for the cross, and we thank you that it levels the playing field, and we thank you that we can read the word, and we can hold it up to the cross, and we can see what is true and what is a lie. We thank you for the consistency of Scripture, God, as we will see tonight. Lord, will you just humble our hearts? Will you soften us to what you want to say to each and every one of us? Thank you for being personal. Thank you for meeting us where we are. Thank you that none of us are where the other person is next to us. We're on a journey. We're on a, we're on, um, a revealed plan for our life, and it is so good. It is good beyond anything we can fathom, or we would never doubt. We can't even go there how good you are to us. Help us to see that so clearly tonight in spite of me, in spite of people and our flesh and our deficiencies and our inadequacies, which we have a lot of, God. Just help us to see you. We want to see you. Lord, I just entrust this time. And just in your name, I am claiming that every word that comes across my tongue is, is from you and it is for you. And it, that it might be helpful and give grace to the listener. 
Lord, may the enemy have no work and effect in this room. And in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so in your notes, you're on page two. Last week, we introed with our theme verse, Matthew chapter 5. What does it mean to be salt? What does it mean to be light? And we're going to dig into that even more next week, because next week is going to be the big approach into all these heavy-hitting topics that are coming. Please, please know that I have been as intentional as I possibly can be to build a foundation. Uh, I think we need a lot of, of strength and a confidence in it. Do we even believe this? Where did the Bible even come from before I just jump into same-sex attraction and abortion and politics? So, so I, I, we got to build. So please, please know um, this is not my opinion. It really is not. <laughs> I, I am sincerely asking the Lord to help me just give you the evidence. It'd be easier for me to get up here and just tell you what I think. But I don't want you to think what I think. I want you to have the evidence of Scripture to affirm what you believe with confidence before the Lord and before others. That's it. So you get to make your decision with the Lord. You have a spirit, and he's speaking to you, and he's guiding you, so listen. Don't listen to me. Listen to him. And I'm going to do the best I can to be salt and light to you. All right, so moving on to page two. The Bible. What does the Bible say about itself? Let's just see what the Bible says about who the Bible is. But before I do that, I want to read you just a, a poll that I was studying. Have you heard of the Barna Group? The Barna Group is a very reputable polling firm. They've been established since the 1980s, and they do a lot of the Christian polling. And they took a poll, and they, they took a thousand adults, random adults, um, from every state in the U.S., and they did this over a period of time. So they did the same poll in 95. They did it again in 2000, 2005, 2008, 2014. And this was what their data gathered. This was a random group of 1,000 adults, not just church-going adults, but adults, over the course of time. And here's, here's what now they're telling us this, this randomized poll showed us. That 47% of people of people in this group believe that the Bible is inspired word of God, but not everything should be taken literally. Nine um, percent, this is perhaps the most staggering, nine percent of American adults hold to a biblical worldview. Nine. Twenty-one percent of the Christians in that population believe that the Bible is an ancient book of fables, legends, history, and moral pre precepts recorded by man. 54% of Christians in that group do not believe in absolute truth at all. And 28% of Christians believe the Bible is the actual word of God and can be taken literally. Now, I just wanted to put some of those statistics in front of you for you to have more evidence. But let's just see what the Bible says about itself. I've done a, just a skimming. I've given you only five scriptures. You should have five scriptures there. Now, I want you just to take notes like a crazy person, Okay. You've got, you've, you've got to have this content, and don't lie to me like you're going to remember this tomorrow. Because we're not. we got lives. They get busy. We're going to forget. So write all this down. But let's, let's just go through this as, uh, as clearly as I possibly can. Proverbs 35. 
The Bible says that every word of God proves true. All right, what do I know immediately with the word proves? What I knew immediately about the word of God, am I going to know it immediately? That it's true? Or is this a process? Yeah, it's a process. It has to prove itself. And it has proved itself over time. And if you will give it time in your life, it will prove itself to be true. And under that, you can just give yourself some more um, knowledge there that no true fact will ever contradict the word of God. Let me say that again. There's no true fact that we know right now in the 21st century that will ever contradict the word of God. For example, God's uh, astronomy lesson <laughs> from the Bible, according to the Bible, is Genesis 1.16. God made two great lights. The greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. Oh, and he made the stars. The end. <laughs> That's God's astronomy lesson. And, but then you have a lot of references through the scripture of the sun. Lot, over 150 times people reference the sun. But from their vantage point, what was, what was happening from the author's vantage point? The sun was going around the earth, right? So, but there's nothing in scripture that now that we have time and it has proven itself true, we know that astronomy has advanced to tell us it's not the sun going around the earth, but the earth is orbiting the sun. So that's just a, an example of how over time God's word has proven true through education and knowledge and industrial revolution. Okay? So it's the same with, with any other small things in our life. Psalm 12, 6, the words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. I don't know that the word seven is necessarily that important other than just a lot. It's the most histori historically accurate book that we have available to us in the 21st century. And that's not just what Christians say. <laughs> that's what the secular world says as well. But I think this is so interesting to think about silver and the refining process of silver. So, of course, the nerd in me goes to find an interview from a silversmith. I literally am typing in, interview with a silversmith. And it, but it was so cool because I learned that silver can only be refined from the hottest point in the fire. So silver in and of itself cannot be refined unless in the hottest point of the fire. You ever been in the hottest point of your fire? And so what you, can, what you know is that the truth of God is being purified in you through refining. But this is what was so cool. The, silver, the silversmith said, what the interviewer said, well, how do you know when the silver is fully purified? And he goes, oh, well, that's easy. Every silversmith knows that the silver is purified when you can see your reflection in it. And now I want you to think about how that translates to us with the word that is pure, when we can see our reflection in it. Think deeply about this. Stretch yourself. This, just, this doesn't just mean, oh, I see people like me in Scripture, and I relate to them. There are obviously a bunch of train wrecks in Scripture, and, and we relate to them. And so we do see ourselves. We see ourselves in David. We see ourselves in Joseph. We see ourselves in whatever character. But what I think this means on a deeper level is look at the Scripture until you actually see who you are. Like, who are you? 
And, and the more that you see God, the more you know about yourself. In fact, to the degree that you believe what he is saying is the degree that you actually have truth in and of yourself. See until your opinions and your biases and your prejudices no longer bear weight. You see what I mean? Like that's the kind of pure truth that the Bible is offering us. And, and it's going to come through what? what? Where is that purification going to come through? When are you going to go to the Word more? When are you going to be hungry, hungry more for it? When everything's great? The fire. The fire. So, for example, one time of fire for me is when I was diagnosed at the age of 30 with cancer. A lot of you know this story. And so for five years I was in treatments and I was being told I, I wouldn't survive. So for the first year... I was really, really angry. And I would go to the Word and it would just fall flat. And I would go back to the Word because I knew that's what I was supposed to do because I was a believer. And it would just fall flat and I was just so mad. I was so mad at the possibility that I wouldn't see him and Grace, you know, be, be married or watch Lake. Okay, come on, get it together, Casey. Or watch Lake um, have his first girlfriend and get his first tattoo, which is totally happening. And I could not see past myself. And then I've got to wrestle with an illness. And some, where did this come from? Where did cancer come from? God, was this Satan? Did Satan give me cancer? Okay, God, because this is just, I mean, you? Did you permit this? Did you allow this? Did you cause that? I'm not asking you to put a word there. Whatever you want to be comfortable with. You don't have to believe like I believe. I'm just telling you, this was my refining, this was my furnace, so my silver had to be reflected to see him, my true self. And in the middle of that, I had to get past what I didn't know yet. He had to become better than whatever the answer was. What I needed from him, I wanted to be healed. That's what I wanted, that's what I begged for, that's what I prayed for. I wanted to be in remission. I wanted to see all of those things. And I would pound my fist. Lord, why? But I kept going back to the Word, and I kept going back to the Word. And I'm not kidding you. The Word changed my heart and my mind, and the Spirit took hold. And the Spirit reflected itself to me. And, and before I got the you're in remission statement from the doctor, I actually didn't... I actually didn't need it. I know that's crazy. That is true. Before I went that day and they said, you're clean. I had gotten to a place where God was better. He was better than the diagnosis. He was better than whether or not I got, I was healed. What's healing anyway, this side of heaven? So you see, keep going back Go back in your fire until he is reflected to you. Psalm 19, 8. The precepts of the Lord are right. Precepts is instruction. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It can enlighten your eyes. Do you love this language? Do you want to be enlightened? <laughs> Do you want to rejoice? Like, do you want these things to be true? I'm going to tell you how this, you will not experience this purity of God's word. If you come to the Bible with an agenda, 
if you are coming with what you need it to say to you, you will miss this. We've got to read God's word until his opinion is greater than our own. <laughs> Second Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This is a really important verse, the, especially the all scripture is breathed out, which I'm going to, you're going to see in just a moment when we're talking about the inerrancy of scripture, that scripture is without error. So when we're saying that we believe that all scripture, like all, Old Testament, New Testament, all the awkward parts, all the topics that ugh, feel really icky and I don't know if I want to talk about, yeah, even that. Is, is the actual, literal word of God given to humans and inspired in them by the Holy Spirit, and they wrote it down. So if we don't believe that, okay, if we just cancel that part out, we actually don't believe Christianity. I'm just telling you what Protestant Christians believe, that all Scripture is actually breathed out by God. And it says that he, you know, the way that, a lot of different ways that he spoke. He didn't just always dictate word for word. Hebrews 1 says that he spoke to our fathers by the prophets in many and various ways. Sometimes it was dictation like John on the island of Patmos, but sometimes it was just gathering historical data, eyewitness accounts like Luke, right? Sometimes dreams, visions, men just watching Jesus live his life. 2 Peter 1.21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Who? But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now we see the process through which the prophets, Old Testament, the apostles, New Testament, experienced God's word and God's voice and wrote it down for us to read throughout centuries. They were carried along. I mean, literally picture like a, you would carry a baby, like helpless, totally reliant on the Word of God, on the Spirit moving in them, carried along. Oh, I also want to say that the Spirit never, never dismissed the author's personality. He, God, was, God was perfectly happy with the person he picked, their tone of voice, their personality, whatever they were, their background, their culture, that is exactly what God intended. That's what we have to believe if we believe that all scripture is God breathed. The people that, that said that they were fallible human people in a fallible world. And so we're not dismissing any parts of them and still believing it's the inspired word of God. So I just want to... Um, ask you if if the inspired word of God was revealed through the Holy Spirit then how will you be convinced of it by the Holy Spirit that's the only way you're going to be convinced of it now clarification point all of us in here who profess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior have the Holy Spirit period. You're, you're capped, you're sealed, um, no darkness can dwell in you, our mind can sure be oppressed, but we can never be possessed if we are the legit deal. 
So you've got the Holy Spirit, but Holy Spirit activated enough to actually give you joy and peace and insight. insight. Y'all want me to do the Holy Spirit activate? I know you do. Mm-hmm. That was last semester. It's fine. Fell flat. I really like TikTok. Okay. <laughs> what, Jennifer? Are you making fun of me because I like TikTok? It's fine. So look, the Holy Spirit... This is the way I see it, okay? This is like kindergarten level, but I need to be there sometime. The, the, I always see this. The word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. And I do picture myself sometimes holding this little lamp. Sometimes I feel like it's from World Market and sometimes it's from Walmart. But I have this lamp and I can only see the step in front of me. It's not the spotlight. I cannot see the end result. I can only see what I'm supposed to do next. Sometimes I feel like that's just a day. Like today, Kayla, I could only see what Monday needed to be for me. And that lamp is enough. But what in the world turns on the lamp to be vibrant enough and bright enough for me to even see to take the next step? The Holy Spirit. Now I've got this lamp and I've got the cord and I've got the plug and I'm walking around Wanting to know what God's will is for my life. Lord, you are so good. I love you so much. Now, I just need you to tell me what the heck you want me to do next. Okay, I've got my lamp. Next thing. But it's like me walking around and I don't, I'm just walking with this cord. I've got the, the light, but it's not plugged into anything. It needs energy. It needs energy. You've got to go plug into an energy source to see. So how long do you think you're going to last a week without energy how i mean three days four days five days how far are you gonna be able to see same so just use that little picture even though it's like kindergarten level it's really good because we got to plug into something to be carried along by it to for our for us to be able to see and what is how is it what is the energy source of the holy spirit what is the energy source of the holy spirit Oh, sorry, that was totally not a trick question. <laughs> the God's Word. We learned this last week. It's the truth that sets us free. It's the light. He is the light. He is the Word of God. Right? Okay. So read your Bible every day. I don't know what more to say about that. If you want to know the truth, if you don't want to know the truth, miss, miss a day, miss some weeks. But if you want to know the truth and you want to feel free, (laughs) I encourage you to plug in. So all of that, those little five verses, oh, there's so much more what the Bible says. So, so much more, obviously. But we are to think of the Bible as the ultimate standard of truth and the reference point by which every other claim of truth is measured. That's the summation. Number three on your notes, and I think I may have given this to you last time, I'm not sure, but I'm going to go over it again, because we all, personally, we function on a standard of truth. Every single one of us in here, whether you want to say it's, you know, whatever, we're all functioning out of truth. So to say, my truth, I went over last time, hashtag my truth is, your truth is, that doesn't change the fact that in order for me to know my truth, there's got to be another one an alternate. My rights. Well, then that means there's a wrong. 
but that's not fair. It's not fair that that happened to me. It's not fair that they did that to me. Well, then what is fair? If you say that to me, I have to go, well, what is fair? What would be just? And you're telling me right now there's an absolute for you. So we all live in this standard of truth, a standard of morality and ethics that applies to all people. That's your blank. Would there be any belief, you don't need to answer this out loud, I just want you to think about it and in your heart, would there be any belief that you have right now that, that you currently hold that might be reconsidered if the Bible is literal truth? Don't need you to answer it out loud, I just need you to ask yourself, is there any belief that you think you might hold right now that might have to be reconsidered if we are saying the Bible is is absolutely true and the standard by which we measure truth. What in the world is the Bible? Is it just an ancient book of stories and fables? There's no way I can do what I have on my paper to do in 10 minutes. But I want you to have an inkling, just just a little bit of data in your toolbox. Uh, So please write some of this down. If you don't already know this, if you haven't already studied, can, can you... This may not be your jam, okay? Like the lecture series that we're going into right now may not be your jam. That's okay. That's okay. But this is important. Can we all agree this is important? that you know where the Bible came from, how we got the Bible. So can I tell, give you just a little bit of context? One of the first words you need to know is the word canon. Canon, and the canon is the collection of the written word of God. It's all the books that we have in the Bible, the list of all the books that we have affirmed are breathed out by God or true. Now, Please don't check out on me. I'm totally going to, I can see all of you. You know that, right? So like if you just totally zone out, I'm going to get in my head right now. Stay with me. Just smile even if you zone out, okay? We have 39 books in the Old Testament. We have 27 books in the New Testament. And that has been what we call canonized. The, the evangelical Protestant church believes that's it. That does not agree with all, and I'm about to tell you a little bit about that. But let's just think about the Old Testament for a moment. In, in fact, let me be even more clear. Let me give you the Old Testament and the New Testament. How do we know what books went in those particular pieces? Well, in the Old Testament, this had to come straight from uh, our early church fathers or prophet. That was it. And every single author in the Old Testament claims to have the authority of God as they are speaking, as they are writing. There is not one author in the Old Testament that would not claim for this to be an actual word of God through the Spirit. Okay? So that's the qualification and the standard. That's why for Christianity, we, we stop at Malachi. Because after Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, that is when even the Jewish historians of that time said there's no, no one else is talking. There's a 400-year gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that, kind of the, the, the silence, the valley of silence where God, everyone, even historians are saying, no one is saying they're a prophet. 
I mean, it would, it, we're reading all the prophets' words. We're all gathered. We're the Israelite people. We're the Hebrew people reading all the words that we've had collected, all the 39 books, and then there's this gap, and no one in here is raising their hand to say, I'm a prophet. I'm hearing from the Word of God, the actual literal Word of God. So that's, that was the end of the Old Testament. And we don't have any further additions after 435 B.C. So 435 B.C., is really the end uh, of the writing of the Old Testament. And what we, you know, what we know now that we have the New Testament and we have thousands of years on us is that God was writing the Old Testament for what purpose? What, what, what was the whole purpose of all of those years of writing? Who, who was coming? Jesus. Yeah. Jesus. The Messiah was coming. So everything that you see is all you need to see to know that. That's like the simplest way I can say it. God is giving us redemptive history to point to the Messiah, and what we have is all you need to believe that. Then Jesus will go on to fulfill over 300 of those prophecies. So we're going to get it really quick. Now, if you know a guy came and said he fulfilled 10 of those, that'd be pretty cool. If a guy came and said, man, I'd like 100 of these, I totally did that. Like, I was born in Bethlehem, just like Malachi said. That'd be like, oh, you might be a candidate. But over 300? He's the only one in history. The only one to fulfill all of these prophecies in the Old Testament. And that's also why we know and we believe in the Old Testament. Because the New Testament affirms that, right? So Jesus and the apostles are quoting the Old Testament that needs to be in the canon. So do, do we have the, um, the original? <laughs> do we have the original, very first copy, not copy, the, like the manuscript of the Old Testament? We do not. Do we have the original New Testament? We do not. Everything that we have are copies. A lot of them. Um, now, I'm not trying to concern you. I'm just trying to fluster you a little bit. So the earliest the earliest known copy, and we can thank the Dead Sea Scrolls for this, is 150 B.C. for the Old Testament. And we pretty much have the, old, the Dead Sea Scrolls contained almost every letter. I believe I'm right in this. If I'm wrong, someone can correct me. I believe they had a piece or a portion of every Old Testament except for Esther. And if that's wrong, Jennifer, you would know. Is, is that wrong? I think that's okay. Thank you. So I, this really helped us. Did it help us? Absolutely. Um, will, will we one day have the original? Maybe. Maybe. For whatever reason, God hasn't allowed us to have that yet because, you know, my goodness, where would we put it? I mean, really. The Vatican? No. The, the Billy Graham Center in Wheaton? Where would we put it there? <laughs> the headquarters for the National Evangelicals in Washington, D.C., and then if we put it somewhere, then perhaps people would worship it or make pilgrimage to it. So 
for whatever reason, God has not given us the original, but we have a really, really early copy. I mean, really early. Let's put this in perspective. So Jesus' ministry was 30 to 33 A.D. All right. And then we have the earliest list of the Old Testament from 170 A.D. Okay, the list, the comprised list of the 39 books was made by a bishop, Melito, at, in A.D. 170. And then we've, the Dead Sea Scrolls date back to 150 B.C. Now listen, oh my goodness, you know what's so cool? The Dead Sea Scrolls, it, it is completely, um, there is, there, it is 95, they've given all the theologians, all the historians, Christian or not, have given it 95% accuracy to what we have in the Old Testament right now. That only 5% window is grammar, punctuation, and some words that we've changed for culture and tone. I'm sorry, but does that not just thrill you? <laughs> I mean, these are not just Christian people saying this. These are archaeologists and scientists that, that come back and go, oh, no, it's exactly what they have, what they're still reading all of these years later. That thrills me. That thrills me. So if Jesus is in 30, 33 AD, and you're looking at really a matter of 130-year difference between the copies, the original copy that we have, and the life and ministry, that's 130 years. That's not much, y'all. That, that's like me knowing my great-grandmother, right? Yeah. I'm like, is that right? Yeah. Ethel Greer, I can see her. I see pictures of her. I remember sitting in her house and how it smelled. I remember the events around her life. We have books. I mean, you see, that was how real it was. Now, Jesus is on the scene. So if what we had in canon listed out was wrong, do you, don't you think he would have let us know 130 years later? when he comes on the scene. So, and, and he affirms what we do have by quoting it. All right. So now, let me move on. Now the New Testament. We know that these letters were written between AD 45 and AD 95. They're about. James is most likely the first letter that was written, Revelation being the last. Very much newer. Now, what, how did you get into the New Testament? You are an apostle, which means that you had eyewitness to Jesus. Or, if you're not an apostle, in that you, you met, touched, slept next to Jesus, you were the right-hand guy of the apostle, and they were affirming your writing. And there's just a few of those. This would be like Luke, and Paul affirmed Luke. This would be like um, Jude. And James, the brother of Jesus, was in Jude's life, mentoring him, and affirmed what he was writing was true. So that's all you've got in the New Testament. Direct authorship of apostles or the firsthand witness of an apostle and affirmation from them. And John 16 gives us some clarity. It says that disciples were promised the Holy Spirit to teach them all things and would cause them to remember all that Jesus had said and guide them to write all the truth. All right? So the first copy that we have of all the New Testament was 367 A.D. And what else do I want to tell you about that? Um, okay, look, I just want you to, I've given you this. You've got to look at this graph right here. I just want you to see how much <laughs> leg we have to stand on here. 
There's a little graph in there, and it's just for your enjoyment, really. But we, you, you, I've given you Plato, who was kind of the founder of philosophy. Now, these particular people have written themselves into our textbooks. This is what universities are built on. Cultures and whole societies were built on the writings of these men. Plato, with philosophy, he, he wrote around 347 BC, but the earliest copy we have of his work is AD 900. What's the time span between that? 1,200 years, and we only have seven copies. But entire thoughts are built around Plato. Aristotle with physics and science, 1,400 years between the time it was written and the earliest copy. Homer, we go to him for literature and, and intrinsic value of humanity, and he's quoted in every corner of philosophy. He, it was writing in 900 BC, we have the earliest copy in 400, the time span of 500 years, and there's only 60, 643 copies in print. The New Testament. Written A.D. 40 to 100, the earliest copy, A.D. 125, with a, with a wee time span of 25 years, with over 24,000 copies. 24,000 copies! But is this making the universities? No. No, I'm going to tell you why it's not. In somehow five minutes, I don't know. All right, I, I could go on and on. Um, we have copies upon copies because we, we don't read Hebrew or Greek. And then we didn't read Latin, which was the first Bible. And then it kind of went to German, and then it went to English. And our first English Bible wasn't even until the 1500s. And, and so there has been copies, and just the way that you would say Shakespeare differently now to get your, to understand the meaning in English, some of those translations. We have thought-for-thought thought Bibles that kind of help people understand the big, like the message or the NLT, those are more thought-for-thought thought copies, translations. We have word-for-word, word. so that's, I pointed you to the ESV. The NASB is great. That would be considered a more word-for-word. Word. You're going to get the Greek and the Hebrew pretty consistently in the English translation, but we still have a lot of broken pieces that we have to fill in the gaps. So this, this can trip us up if we let it. But ultimately, ultimately, number four on your notes, our confidence, that's your blank, our confidence to hold to the Bible as absolute truth must be in the faithfulness and goodness of God alone. Mm. Look, he is not trying to trick you or hold out on you. And I, I believe the severity of the punishment for those giving authority to wrong or additional text is confirmed in Revelation 22:18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of the prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. This is serious. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 tells us this is the final of Scripture. Everything has been canonized that God wants canonized. It's closed. And so you immediately, as I'm saying that, you already know where I'm stepping on toes, right? The Quran, the Book of Mormon. Seventh-day Adventist, Roman Catholic Church. So the Roman, I do want to give you a note because I think this is helpful because um, some of my dearest friends are, are Catholic. And 
I'm not here to say any, anything about salvation or any, any of that denomination. I'm, I simply do want you to know that where the Protestant church differs from the Catholic church deeply is that in that 400 years of silence, there were still people writing. There were great historians like Josephus who wrote. <laughs> he even wrote because he, he was taking history of everything and writing it down. Comment there were people writing commentaries, theologians and, and philosophers, helping us to understand the Bible. They wanted us to understand it. Just like this, I brought my, my favorite commentary so that you could take a picture of it. It's going to take you 10 years to read, but it's just fabulous. And if you want a deeper understanding of God's Word, here you go, take a picture of it. But like Wayne Grudem, well, he wasn't a prophet. He, this isn't canon, but this is very helpful to help me understand the canon. And so this is what was going on. And so Josephus himself said that from Artaxerxes to our own time, a complete history has been written, but has not been deemed worthy of equal credits with earlier records because of the failure of the exact succession of prophets. So even the greatest historians in that 400-year gap were saying there's nothing Nothing being written that should be canon. And, and, and time, 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 because remember, no Xerox machine. This is on papyrus. Time, time, time. We're telling stories about God. If you're the common man on the street, you don't have access to the word of God. This is for the priests and the church. So time and stories and telling and copies and copies. And literally, they're having to write in ink, <laughs> like one word at a time. And if you were a Hebrew scribe, you would write the word Yahweh once. You would go and wash your hands and go back and scribe and scribe until you hit Yahweh. Then you'd go wash your hands every time you wrote it. This is a long, you see, it's years, hundreds of years. And people were writing very in inspired things, like the book of the Maccabees, very inspired words of just their spirit. Uh, the Tobit, the wisdom of Solomon, Judith, the book of Judith. So there's other writers, but the canon has been closed. And the Reformation comes along, and this fellow by the name of Martin Luther, who was a Catholic priest, suddenly said, what? Is happening here I feel like we've got some stuff contrary I feel like we've got the canon and then we got all these sidebar notes so just like you read your Bible you know when you read your study Bible and you have all those commentary pieces to help you that's what it looked like they were writing the Latin Bible for the first time and then they were putting in these sidebar pieces um, and but the church was being the church and human and sinful and they were bringing it into the actual doctrine and teaching of the church so for example confession to a priest so things were being distorted and confused over time of that's that big silence and copies being made and so Martin Luther stood up and said I have 95 problems that I can see and there you kick off the Reformation the Protestant Reformation because the Catholic Church had to decide what they were going to do with this rogue priest saying, we, we're believing, we're teaching books that don't align with some of the other scripture. So we need to account for that and we need to be clear and truthful here what's going on. So in, truly in reaction to Martin Luther, you have the, um, the Council of Trent that met in 1546. It was a group of Catholic priests, and they decided to canonize 12 books in addition to the Old Testament 39. 
Nothing ever touched on the New Testament. That's pretty much undisputed across the board. But now you have the Apocrypha, and that's what the Apocrypha is. The Apocrypha is the Roman Catholic canonizing those 12 additional pieces as holy inspired scripture. I'm not asking you to decide on any of those things, but I'm telling you that Protestant Christianity opposes the Apocrypha as actual canon. All right, I'm over time, so I'm going to skip that little part. Darn it. I am going to address, give me just five more minutes. I'm going to address, okay, Chris? <laughs> You're sweet. All, to, to the best of my ability, here's what's coming. I, I really don't know the timeline. I'm so just open to the Spirit. I can tell you that next week we're going to talk about our approach as believers in conversation and how we are to approach in kindness and compassion and loving others as Christ has loved us and what that would even mean and how we communicate about the Word of God. And then from there, we're going to move into these really hot-button issues. And I'm going to show you. I will present the other side. I really will. I will show you all that. There are right issues that we ought to take with some of the translations. For example, one of the very first, in 1885, the revised version of Scripture had the word slave in it only twice. But when that was revised to the new revised version in 1989, the word slave occurred over 140 times. So we're right to be tripped up in some aspects where we should go, wait a minute, is the Bible condoning slavery? You're, you're not in sin to ask that question. You're following in a long line of faithful people who looked at the text until they could see God's redemptive plan and, and looked at, uh, and I'm going to explain that to you. So I'm, I'm going to help you understand, like, what was the culture around? We're going to talk about race relations and slavery and does the Bible, what does the Bible say about it? I think we can all agree, just broad brushstroke for now, that God absolutely uses sin and evil to get his point across. I mean, we're not just talking about slavery. There is m murder. The Israelites were told to go and completely annihilate man, woman, and child in Canaan. So before I'm dealing with slavery, I'm dealing with that. So these are big things. So we, we want to look at how the word has been copied and translated, but I want to give you so much hope. God is... God is revealing through redemptive history, not by immediate proclamation. He is applying the principles of the gospel to actual human consciences of men and women. And therefore, through us, he changes the sentiments of society and he gradually and kindly works through us. So we have to study our Bible. We have to see the movement. And, and always, always, that word inerrant, I think you have that on your notes, yes? Inerrancy is that the Bible is without error. It will always affirm what is true. It will never affirm what is untrue. And the context will affirm the meaning. So the context of slavery in Hebrew land, there was no... 
There was no, no idea of land of the free. That, did, that was not a thing for the Hebrews. Everyone was a slave to someone. Everyone. The Egyptians were a slave to someone. The Hebrews were a slave to someone. You, you went to the king or to your neighbor or whatever. So this wasn't some concept, slave, servant, one and the same. It's how they worked. It's how they got paid. It's how they survived. So the idea of chattel slavery that is evil in every way, that, that wasn't even on the scene until the 1400s, but, but so does that make sense? So we've got to rip away the timeline of history as we know it in the 21st century and put ourselves back in there. Chattel slavery had not even become a thing. In fact, you, if you read Deuteronomy, there are intense consequences if you do not treat your servant with the utmost respect. They can live where they wanted to live. You fed them. They got your inheritance. They were your messengers. They took care of your kids. They were your family. It was different. It looked different. Um, so, look, but is there, like, polygamy? I mean, it's, it's sin. Slavery's still sin. But it's in the Bible, and you're going to see the consequences of sin. Polygamy is always going to be a bad idea. It's never going to work out well. And we're just going to see that play out. And so it, we're going to watch sinful behavior being regulated, but not endorsed. Sinful behavior is regulated, but not endorsed by the Old Testament. I gave you some, some truth timeline of truth there, how truth has changed over the years. You can just have that for free. But I've got to jump forward so we don't lose ourselves here. We're going to talk about a lot of offensive things over the next few weeks. But I want you to know there is no more polarizing and offensive truth than one thing. And it is not abortion, and it is not same-sex attraction, and it is not sex before marriage, and it is not gender roles or politics. It's none of those things. There is one thing that's more offensive than any of those things. And that is the gospel. The most polarizing truth of all is that we need Jesus. John 14, 6, it divides peoples and steeples. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, Matthew 10. And that truth is going to set man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those in his own household. Do you see how polarizing this can be? When you decide that Jesus is the only way. I gave you scripture there because I wanted you to see the progression and the truth of God judging perfectly and God giving grace without merit. The most offensive words are you need Jesus. Or perhaps second to Genesis 1, in the beginning God. that everything was created for him. And absolute truth is going to place us in a position, this is in your notes, to be accountable and judged. 
which leaves us then no other position or choice but to be desperately in need of grace. You see how that works? If God is perfect judge and I am accountable to him because I, we are all inherently evil, and, and the copies and the translations are going to change over time because the biases and the prejudices of an evil man changes over time. But we all stand before God, which leaves us no other choice but desperately, desperately, like being carried along like a babe in need of grace. And that is the real offense to our culture. It's the gospel. Because people do not want to be told that they are accountable to anybody. That everything in the beginning, God, that he's in charge of everything, all things were created for him, through him, by him. Nobody wants to... And so in order to alleviate our guilt, what we've done as a culture is we've tried to absolve right and wrong, to be more inclusive. But that, where has that left us? Okay, so going forward, we're going to need great conviction. We're going to need great compassion and great courage. It's, it's going to ask a lot of you to show up and wrestle with these truths. Are you ready? Are you ready for that? I hope so. I don't know that I am, but we're going. We're going together, and that gives me a lot of hope and a lot of strength. So, Father, we love you. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your word that it is true. Lord, may we all do battle and wrestle with our own accountability before you and where that leaves us. We need you so much. We need you more every day. We love you so much. May we hold to these truths as each and every one of us hear from your spirit and know you until we see our reflection in you. And it's in your name that we believe and pray. Amen.